Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Pete Rollins as he continues our series, The Way I See It. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for jumping on and uh, participating and uh, following up here on with a conversation with Pete Rollins. We're really excited. Uh, Peter Gad here, and we're with Kristen Birch and all. And today we get to continue our series, The Way I See It. I'm hearing from the perspective of Pete Rollins. And so thanks, Pete, for jumping on this call. We're happy to have you share uh, from L.A. is where you're at right now. And so thanks for jumping on the call and hanging out with us a little bit. I appreciate the invite. Looking forward to uh, the discussion. Yeah, for sure. We'd rather have you in person, but if we can't have you in person, I'll take a Zoom version of you. It's still a pretty good version of you. So, <laughs> so in I, your talk. Um, oh wait, yeah, Peter, you I was going to say, well, the first time that, that you came to visit Eastlake was, oh, was years and years ago. And we yeah. were in our big building and we had a huge staff. And I remember Ryan being like, you guys, your mind is going to be blown. <laughs> and you were doing what you do. And I know back then it was like, oh my goodness. And then when I was listening to this talk that you just did, when you were like, um, when you said, it's not that I don't know myself, it's that I don't know that I don't know myself. And I was like, oh, it's so nice to hear from Pete Rollins. Whereas before, if you would have said that, I was like, you know, that would have scared me. And I would have been like, what? What is he talking about? But it was just... It's so good to hear from you. I know it's been a while and yeah. it just felt a little bit like, oh, I'm just so glad to hear from you. So thank well, you. Thank you. I really, I, I miss Eastlake. I, and I say, I wish I was up there in person. Um, and I did feel that, you know, sometimes the first time people hear my talks, there's so many twists and turns yeah. that it can be a little bit kind of, uh, what's he saying? So I think maybe um, I packed a lot into the talk that I gave. So yeah. hopefully we can give it some space to breathe uh, in this, sure. this uh, conversation. Yeah, no, you gave us plenty, uh, which is great. In fact, that's even what I kind of want to do at the start was just to maybe give people who aren't too familiar with your work, or maybe haven't heard you even share. Can you just give us a little background? You mentioned a couple things that you have some training in continental philosophy, you have some training in psychoanalytics and like, what are you kind of up to? What are you doing? I know you have a podcast and you have some other stuff that you're kind of up to, but just a little background would be helpful, I think, to kick things off. Yeah. I mean, so I, my, my training is, as you said, is in primarily continental philosophy, but uh, I'm a practitioner and a lot of my work is about setting up communities, communities of transformation. We call them transformance art. And um, it's, uh, these communities are, um, coming out of and are uh, kind of influenced by and part of Christianity, but it's very much a Christianity that is, um, it's not connected necessarily with theism or questions of atheism or questions of belief, but about um, our way of being in the world. So for me, Christianity is not a way of believing things about the world, 
but rather a way of, of existing within the world. And so these communities are an invitation into a certain form of life. Uh, and so that's, that's what I primarily do. I teach on that. I set up communities and uh, that's called parotheology. Got it. Give me just a little bit more on how you landed on pyrotheology, just like the <laughs> background of, of what that means yeah. for you. Well, you know, like many of these things, it was kind of just a uh, happenstance. Uh, we were doing an event. We, we, so we put on these transformance art events. And we were going to do one which was inspired by a quote by um, Bonaventura Doretti, which is the only church that illuminates is a burning one. And we like this because it has this really interesting double meaning. So obviously on the surface, it's like, you know, burn religion to the ground. And, you know, a lot of us see the value of that. But also there's this idea that religion is burning. Like there's a, the, the burning bush that burns with something passionate that doesn't consume it. And a lot of us want to see that that dimension of religion expressed. So we like the play on words and we created this event called parotheology. Uh, and then I thought, oh, that's a good word to use. And see, what happens is every time I try to describe what parotheology is, um, I fail to do it. I write a book on it and I go, I didn't quite nail it down. I better write another book, do another course. But every failure generates what it is. So parotheology yeah. wasn't anything. It was just a word, a signifier that through the failure to describe it over 20 years becomes something. And by the way, that's, that's at the very core of parotheology, by the way, is that that failure is where productivity is and enjoyment is. We think that enjoyment is getting to the point where we can retire and have the money we want or marry the person we want to marry. You know, Some end goal, that's where the happiness is. And so we're unhappy because we don't get it or we're unhappy because we do. In parotheology, there's, there's this idea that actually the enjoyment of life is in a perpetual enjoyable failure, a struggle, sacrifice, and, and, and that is not only enjoyable, but productive. So parotheology, through my failure to describe it, constantly gives me a lot of enjoyment and is now becoming something. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's been your work for an, a long time. A long time since I was, so I'm 48 now, and since, the, since 17, I started doing this work. And um, it really is an attempt to articulate a different vision, a kind of reformation of Christianity. Um, so, yeah. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that and giving some of that background. Um, I also know a number of East Lakers follow your podcast. For, so for those um, who aren't maybe on the subscribe yet, this is your chance to just do your YouTube channel, you know, like yeah. have that subscribe button. So what's the name of your podcast and uh, what, what's it currently focused on? Yeah, so I've got a podcast called The Fundamentalists uh, with a comedian friend of mine called Elliot Morgan. And it's um, where, you know, there's the fun, the comedy, there's the mentalism, the mental, there's the, um, the exploring the fundamentals of what does it mean to live before you die. So we do that pretty regularly. And then I have an archive of just talks that are free on YouTube as well. Um, I think it's just called the archive. I'm not sure. That's harder to find, but it is out there. <laughs> so there's, cool. and there's hundreds of hours of stuff on YouTube as well. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. And for those of you who enjoy this conversation, Lots of peak content out there. So, um, Kirsten, do you have any other things you want to hit before we can kind of dive into maybe some questions related to his, his talk? Nope. Okay. Cool. All right. So in this uh, talk that you gave, uh, right, we're, you're kind of continuing this series, maybe um, in the middle of this conversation regarding the way I see it. And the first thing you said basically is, like, in order to give this talk, you have to be honest and say that <laughs> I don't know the way I see it, right? You're, it's, 
you're maybe the, the headline is like, it's not that I don't know. It's, I don't know that I don't know. So you're basically highlighting that as a human, and, and this isn't just you confessing, this is your take on the human species, right? That we don't know what we want, what we believe, but we basically are kind of deluded into thinking that we should, or we, we have this underlying assumption that we definitely know ourselves. Um, so I kind of wanted you to just share, like, maybe to start um, our conversation on, like, how long have you maybe had this perspective on being a human? Like, were there some important things that happened to you growing up or important things that happened to you, like, in your transition from maybe late, you know, teenage years to adulthood that made you be like, I'm not sure where some of these beliefs are coming from, but they're bubbling up and I'm not sure I even trust them anymore. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. The difficulty is, while it's obvious that we are infested by other desires, it's not obvious to us. So we experience it every day, slips of the tongue. I had a friend who recently said to me, this is just last week, she said, um, oh, I have to send some, she typed this, vice messages to somebody. Now, she meant voice messages, but she said vice messages, right? And the thing is, I think, she, you know, she likes this person, but the messages were, there was no vice to them. They were completely work-related. They were innocent. But she, she expressed her, her desire, her forbidden desire, which was even um, uh, not one that she knew. But it was obvious. It was like vice messages. Oh, you've just, you've just said the truth, right? We're always telling the truth. But we, we are... Our consciousness is designed to protect us from seeing it. So actually, although I was, and by the way, we all know this when you desire something and then you get it and you no longer desire it. You go, I thought I desired that, but then I got it and I no longer desired it. You know, there's people who they can only desire what's impossible. So obsessives, they, they, only, they, can, they can only desire what is in some way not able to be gotten, somebody else's partner or whatever. And there are some people who can only desire when they're jealous whenever their partner is under threat of being taken away, right? So they think that they desire their partner, but they don't, they desire jealousy or they desire impossibility, <laughs> but we don't know that. So this is all to say that there is this human phenomenon that we all exist within and it's called the unconscious, but we don't have a language to, to kind of make sense of it. And so the funny thing is what we do, which is hilarious is, the very thing that speaks the truth is the very thing that we say, oh, that's not me. Like, oh my goodness, I erupted in anger for no apparent reason at you. That's not who I am. That's, that's, that's not me, right? Now in psychoanalysis, that's the very point when they prick up their ears because you're going, oh, maybe that is very much you. And you just, you, you haven't been able to symbolize that part of yourself, right? Everything else is a part of a type of illusion. Now I'm describing all that because two discourses maybe three, helped me to make sense of that. And actually, one of them is a theological discourse. There is this idea that you get in Christianity that the heart is deceptive and that we don't know our beliefs and, you know, that we, we think that, you know, we're clean on the, on the outside when we're dirty on the inside. And we think, you know, we think we have all the answers, right? And so that's critiqued within the religious tradition. Um, in psychoanalysis, of course, is all about this idea of, of uh, helping us encounter and understand our desires and then philosophy. So yeah, so I guess I, I always knew it in my body and then I find a language to be able to make sense of it. Hmm. Yeah. 
that that brings up a lot of questions for me. So <laughs> I, 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 I have experienced that, right? So just recently, um, we had bringing I had a situation where we've talked about uh, potentially moving, right? Of course, we're in COVID season. We've talked about like, okay, if, if this house became available, I think we might do it. And that house became available and we had to like actually go through the pros and cons and we didn't do it. We, we, we chose not to after all that. But when it was this hypothetical, maybe it was way more appealing than when it was an actual, I have to make the decision. So I can relate to like, I don't know what I want. I just think I do, or I maybe like make a grandiose version of what I want. Anyways, that was the first example yeah. that came to my mind. Um, but I guess part of my follow-up question to that would be, have you seen the movie? You have to have seen the movie Inception, right? Where oh, yeah, yeah. these dreams are planted within me, we're planted within me, planted within me. Um, when I hear you say like, we don't know what we want or we don't know what we desire. And, and I think you spoke to like, is this what I even desire or is this what my dad wanted of me or my dad's dad wanted of him? And that's why he projected that onto me. Like, where does the inception stop? Like at, at what level, like how far do we need to go? And how do I know mm -hmm. if I'm at level four and I need to go to level 10 um, in, in terms of continuing to dig? I'm curious, just some of your, I don't know if you have a quick answer on that. Obviously, I'm not asking for you to psychoanalyze me on this Zoom call, <laughs> but I'm curious for just the casual listener, like what, what are some of the practices or how do you think about like how deep we need to go to know whether or not this is like a surfacey level problem or this is something deeper like how do I tell the difference yeah um, and I guess the way to maybe approach an answer to that I, I would say and you know I'd have to give an argument for why I believe this but hey we don't have enough time for the work we <laughs> might, so I'll do what's not allowed and just go to what I think the answer is is um is that we are uh, a set of conflictual desires um that is who we are so some people think there's a you know um there's kind of a non-conflictual non center. We can hit this point at which we get to the true self. Um, what I would argue is that to be human is to, is to have conflictual desires and desires that, that reflect our upbringing and reflect our parents. And you can never unpick it all. It's, it's so, the, the, the webs go out. Even I use an example of my friend and my friends reflecting desires of his dad, which actually reflected his, his dad's own feelings about himself. Um, these webs go out, even in the Bible, it talks about isn't it, the sins of the father are down to the son. You know, the, there's this notion in, in, a, in a kind of uh, religious language that has a, has a psychoanalytic dimension to it, which is, yes, desires are passed through families and they continue to rumble within us. And the idea is not to be able to kind of filter through it all and get to the real self. It's to go, oh, no, that's who I am. I am hmm. this beautiful amalgamation of conflict. And actually, this, the kind of the cure is to enjoy the conflict that you are, right? <laughs> the, so, so say, for example, you go to a psychoanalyst and you're clenching, clenching your jaw and you go and you realize you're clenching your jaw because it's a symptom. And symptoms are coagulations of contradiction. So maybe it's you want to shout at your partner, but you're worried that if you shout at your partner, they'll leave you. So you want to keep your mouth shut. So the coagulation of this contradiction is that you're clenching your jaw. That now opens up this possibility of, oh, you want to shout at someone and you want to keep quiet. But then as we look at that contradiction, it goes deeper and it goes into this is how you felt when you were a child, wanting to speak and yet feeling that you might not be able to speak. So that brings you to a deeper contradiction. And eventually, 
you come to this, what I would call an ontological contradiction, which is, oh, like that is what it is to be human, to, you know, to be able to, to not be able to articulate yourself in every way that you want to be able to speak and remain silent. And, and you accept that contradiction and you no longer clench your teeth. <laughs> Love it. So would you go ahead, Kristen? It seems like you're about to jump in there. Well, I think it just is a little bit. I appreciate getting to that level because I feel like I yeah. do exist in paradox and duality all of the time. And I find myself um, in big issues and small issues. Of what are we going to have for dinner? And where do we want to live? And how we want to raise our kids and watching the news and all of these things. Yeah. I feel like I'm constantly like, well, I see this and then I see that. And I don't know, do I feel this way or do I feel that way? And I, I think I just find comfort in you saying that's what it is. That's the reality of being a human. And I think that that, because mm -hmm. I feel sometimes like very just torn a lot and indecisive a lot because I feel like I exist in that paradox. And so I think you're just giving words to <laughs> tell me that it's okay to feel that way. Uh, I mean, it's funny. So Soren Kierkegaard, the great Christian existentialist, you know, he, he, he said beautifully something very, sounds very counterintuitive today because he says anxiety is the evidence of our freedom. And he says, so anxiety is the experience of not knowing who I am, what I should do. Whether, you know, so anxiety is this kind of like not knowing this in-betweenness. And Kierkegaard says, well, the reason why you have anxiety is because he calls it spirit, actually. It's, it's your freedom manifesting itself, that you don't know what you should do, that you're kind of between things. And so for Kierkegaard, the solution to anxiety was not to get rid of it, but to somehow say yes to it, to embrace it and to begin to enjoy it. And the more you try to run from anxiety, get rid of it, the more we actually dull something that is the creative uh, dimension of ourselves. So yeah, so um, anxiety in our society is what we flee from and what we try to get rid of in all sorts of ways. But for Soren Kierkegaard, there's something about anxiety that that is actually the evidence of what it means to be human. If you didn't have anxiety, you would just be a machine, kind of like just utilitarian machine, maximizing yeah. pleasure, minimizing pain. Yeah. That's, that's really a great helpful thought. for me. <laughs> yeah, that, it, it's really helpful beautiful. for me too. Yeah, I can relate to the indecision too, Kristen. I, growing up, I've always called myself a decisive person. I've been married for 15 years and we joke and our marriage that Brittany is indecisive and I'm a quick decider and somewhere in the middle, like I can like be more patient and be slower to make decisions. You like help allow her to slow us down and she can allow me to speed us up. We tend to make pretty good choices in our life. The, the longer I'm an adult, the more indecisive I feel, the less, the more I'm just coming over to where she is and to like, you can talk me into any decision. So I, I am curious too, Pete, like, how, in light of this, like how, how do you get, you just have to get comfortable with failure. Like you're saying right at the beginning, you have to get comfortable with, I made a decision that seemed right at the time and looking back, I would do it differently. Like embracing more, being comfortable with your indecision. Is that a lot of the takeaway there? Yeah. And, and, and I want to go. So there's, there's somebody could say, for example, failure is a necessary evil. We have to get used to it. It's just part of life. We don't know everything, but I'm saying something a little bit more, than that, I'm kind of turning that up to 11. I'm kind of actually going to, you know, failure is what is actually not just a necessary evil, something that we have to um, tolerate. It's actually where life in all its richness and meaning and depth comes from. 
that struggle and sacrifice um, is not just what we have to do in order to get happiness. <laughs> struggle and sacrifice is, is the, not just the royal road to meaning and depth. It is meaning and it is depth. A world without sacrifice is a world without depth. And so we in society have lots of ways to integrate sacrifice because we have to. Because in a world where everything is exchange, right, where there's no, there's no gift giving, because a gift giving is a sacrifice to give a gift is to be non-reciprocal, right? If I, if I go into a shop, I give you money, you give me something back. A gift is a non-reciprocal event. Um, so it's a sacrifice. So in society, and you don't do this in America because of the way you use credit cards, but in Ireland, and it's always a problem for me when I'm in America, right, is in Ireland, you, you buy rounds for people, right? You go in, you buy a round for your friends, and then they buy a round for you. And you don't just buy your own drinks. Now, in America, because you put your credit card behind the bar, people buy their own drinks. So I'm always buying a round for people, and it gets very confusing. And they go like, yeah, I have to buy a round back, and how does that work? <laughs> but the idea is that, this is a type of gift giving, but it's a reciprocal gift giving because, you know, eventually someone's going to buy you a pint. But the sacrifice is what generates the friendship and what can, what can kind of uh, help you get over difficulties or even just bringing a bottle of wine when you go to a friend's house for dinner. But there's all sorts of gift giving rituals that we have in society because we understand that sacrifice is inherent to the nature of human interaction. That's cool. Yeah. I think the big takeaway there is don't go to a bar with an American. Yeah. You <laughs> go, to a bar a with, go to a bar with Pete. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You always get around. It causes everybody consternation. And then I go up to the bar and say, do you want to put that on your credit card? It's all very confusing. It's very confusing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I want to hear um, some of your thoughts. on. You said um, you talked about Jesus and the Gospels a little bit, and you kind of shared how your take on Jesus was that um, he's his work or his teaching at some level was to help confront our disavowed beliefs. Yeah, that was a sentence that you said, and I was curious. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm hearing that to mean like the the gospels or the work of Jesus was to help kind of put a mirror in front of us to help us see the right the the speck and the log in our own eye versus the speck in our brothers. Are there exa like other examples that come to your mind? Um, I'm curious, like how you, like, what, what lenses you're viewing the Gospels through? Like, are there a couple different ones that you tend to see that being a primary, like, theme of the Gospels? Yeah, um, so I, in philosophical terms, I'm called a structuralist, and a, a structuralist, broadly speaking, is a, someone who looks at underlying structures. So, for example, in a game of chess, you have the board and you have the pieces, uh, but if you lose a piece, you can just put a button down or a coin and it can represent one of the pieces. Because what's important is the, is the grammar of the game, the underlying rules. Um, in the same way, when you go to Netflix, there's so many different movies and there's an infinite variety of possible movies, but they fall into different structures, action movies, romantic movies, all of that. They've got similar structures. So the argument I'm making is that the, the structure of Christianity is... One that includes, this is an exhaust, but includes a breakdown of the scapegoat mechanism. It is very structural. Now, it's also reflected in the Gospels. So there's basically two ways that people 
uh, think of religion sometimes. Religion either as it tells you what to believe, right? So a religion is you tick certain boxes. This is what I believe in God. I believe in G. I believe in X, Y, and Z. And that's what religion is. Um, Or um, uh, you might have kind of more of a kind of new age religion, which is you go through meditation and and you go into yourself and you you touch the divine by, you know, an internal whatever. I would argue that in Christianity and in the Gospels, you constantly see Jesus do the radical psychoanalytic move of saying the truth of who you are is in how you interact with people and is is on the surface, is in you know the people that you the the especially in Christ in, in the crucifixion, right? Is that the Christ that you crucify, who's he's taking on all of your sin, all of your debt, all of your lack, all of your all of that is actually a reflection of you. And so there's lots of parables that are designed pre- precisely to help you confront yourself through how you deal with the neighbor and confront yourself, uh, kind of basically expose that you aren't your own self-description of yourself. You are, um, you are discovered through whether you love your neighbor. You know that idea, if you love your neighbor, if you say you love God, but but don't love your neighbor, you're a liar, right? It's, it's an amazing yeah. idea. It's like, there is no touching God by going deep into your soul or by making the right decisions. No, there's only one way to do it. There's only one. And this is the, this is the, this is the boring materialist side of Christianity. It's like, oh, it's loving your neighbor. It's tarrying with others and, and encountering the other. And that's very connected to psychoanalysis, which is that you discover yourself through your enemy and as you tarry with that as you come to know that you can come to love the other and engage with them so yeah anyway hey east lake peter here thanks so much for tuning in to watch this message i wanted to do just a quick interruption to say thank you to so many of you who are making regular contributions to east lake east lake is a nonprofit, and everything that we do is because of a community of consistent and generous people who really believe in this place and want to see it continue. So uh, if you're a part of that community, thank you for how you make this place go. If you are tuning in regularly and are part of this community, but you haven't yet um, jumped in to making a financial contribution, we would encourage you to do that and encourage you to go to eastlakecc.com to help support Eastlake as a community and continue to make these messages possible. Thanks so much for uh, letting me interrupt your message. Let's jump back in. I'm curious, like, so, so like the Good Samaritan, for example, like, could you, could you like analyze that parable through your lens there, right? So there, obviously the the story, right? The story is that the bad guy is the one who's the most compassionate, but the person in our brain that we think is the worst happens to be the most compassionate person in the story. So are you saying that that, that parable is an example of like putting a mirror up of who we call bad and who we call good? Yeah, and, and the Samaritan, you could put in anybody, right? So Samaritans is the outsider. So it's the outsider of the day, right? This is the, uh, the Samaritan. And so basically there's this, this issue of like the one who you think is the outside, yes, is, is the one who does the good. But here, let's give you, a, a, I think, the, the best example is the very, the very heart of Christianity, right? The first conversion, really, the, the, the paradigm, the paradynamic conversion is Paul, Paul's conversion, right? Saul to Paul, right? And he's on the road to Damascus. He is persecuting a small group called the Christians, right? But it could be anybody. You could just call them X, but we'll call them Christians, right? And now he thinks, if only I get rid of this small group, 
kind of cut them out of the pure religion, right? There's a true religion. This is a heretical bunch. They're a cancer. We cut them out of the body. Then, then everything will be great. So it's, it's the scapegoat mechanism. It's the idea that, oh, that group of people there, they're the evil ones, they're the bad ones. Just get rid of them and everything would be great, right? Then Paul hears a voice. Why do you persecute me? Now, this is a brilliant. This is incredible because what he's realizing is in persecuting the other, he's persecuting God, right? God is in the other. Um, in other words, it's like they are the good news to Paul. So as soon as he realizes, as he falls off his horse, or whatever, Caravaggio hasn't fallen off his horse, he goes blind and he's converted. He realizes that the very group that he's trying to get rid of is the site of his salvation. So basically what I'm saying is, and I've used this example before, maybe with you guys, but like whenever somebody does work with the homeless, right? And they think I'm good news to the homeless or we go to prison work, I'm good news to the prisoners, right? It's like, no, 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 no. The, the homeless are good news to you, right? The prisoners are good news to you. Why? Because homelessness, the homeless um, are not the problem. They're the solution to a problem. There is a problem within society and the solution to the problem is the homeless community that can be managed. So maybe the problem is underemployment, under unemployment, uh, uh, inability to work with people with mental health issues, under provision of those kinds of things, right? There's all these problems, right? So those are the problems. The solution is let's have a group that we can police that we can put into tent cities and we can kind of like move around whenever we need to, right? So when you go to the homeless, they are the truth of your society, the disavowed truth, the truth that you don't know. Oh, everything's great. Oh, like, you know, LA is a great place to live. It's beautiful. There's no problems here. You go to Skid Row, that's the, the concrete manifestation of the problem of Los Angeles, right? So if you think of Los Angeles as the subject, right? It's the, I am putting my Instagram picture on online, right? LA puts its Instagram picture right there. Oh, it's great, it's a land of opportunity, it's wonderful, it's this and that. And you go, where is the truth? The truth is in Skid Row. That is the, that is the manifestation of a disavowed problem within LA. When you go to the homeless and you ask, why are they there? You realize, oh, that is the good news to me. I have to repent, I have to change something about how I live and about how I interact. And if I do that, then the homeless population will dissipate because the homeless population is actually there precisely because we can't face the problem. So for me, that's central to Christianity. You have it in the crucifixion. You have it in the conversion of Paul. This idea that, that we have this idea of the other is the problem, but actually the other reflects something of ourself that we have to tarry with. Hmm. Beautiful. That's challenging. Um, I mean, you said too, I think it's probably in the same vein, but you said, um, he wants to know your disavowed self. It's not through meditation. You need to look at your enemies or look yeah. at the other. So that's, that's, is a, 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 that's the same sentence. Basically, that's the headline for what you just highlighted, correct? That's the same theme. Absolutely. Yeah, you go to, you don't, you don't, you, in LA, you go to Skid Row, right? You don't, you don't go to your, uh, you know, your, your Zen retreats, you go to Skid Row. That's the truth, right? I mean, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing for us to, to embrace, but it's the symptom. So a symptom, as I said, is a coagulation of a contradiction. This, the symptom, one of the symptoms of Los Angeles is the homeless population, right? That is a symptom that's saying there's a contradiction, a disavowed contradiction within Los Angeles that isn't being addressed. And the truth of it is the symptom. Now, symptom, 
comes from the ancient word santom. Santom sounds like holy man, right? Uh, what does a holy man do? A holy man is a prophet who speaks the truth. And if you listen to the truth of the prophet and repent, things will change. And if you don't, things will be disastrous. The homeless are the mm. symptom, the santom, the holy man. Santom is in French for holy man. They are the voice of truth that we have to listen to. And if we listen to it, we can transform and change. Let me show you something very quickly. Love it. <laughs> um, so can you guys see that? Is this going to be video showing or just audio? Both. No, it's, it's both, yeah. It's both, okay. So that what, picture, I, yeah. what so I'm showing you is it, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's a propaganda poster from 1948 by a guy mm -hmm. called Piotr Gulub. Propaganda poster of Stalin looking at the sailors, and this is a battleship. It's typical propaganda picture, which was actually created, printed, and put up. And then somebody realized this was, a, and they called it an absolute abomination, and it was destroyed. And it's actually very hard to find now. And you look at it and go, what's wrong with it? And you go, well, everything looks perfect, except if you look at Stalin's fingers. And you realize there are these monstrous fingers, and there's only three of them. He's only got three fingers in each hand. Mm. Oh, my goodness, right? Why is that, that this propaganda picture was made, and then Stalin has these monstrous three-finger hands, and this was made? Well, the first thing you think is, well, was this a mistake? And you go, well, no, because God, you ha wouldn't have to be as bad at drawing hands. You'd have to be bad at knowing you were bad at drawing hands, right? <laughs> was it deliberate? No, because he's going to get killed. This is a kind of like what's called the Freudian slip, the deliberate mistake. But my point is that LA is like that. You look at the beautiful side and you think the truth is the beauty. No, the truth is the anomaly. It's the three-fingered monstrosity of Skid Row. That's the truth. And only when you see the truth can you begin to change the structure itself. Hmm. It's interesting to hear you even be someone who's so focused. I mean, when I think psychoanalyze, I think, oh, that's like an internal work where I'm going to go and I'm just going to go inside and I'm going to be reflective and I'm going to, clearly I haven't done it. I'm going to journal. I'm going to do all the things that like help me understand myself. Right. And it's going to be a, a Peter Gad work with Peter Gad and a therapist. So it's interesting that like you would like be someone, that's what I, that's what I imagine of it, which probably shows my lack of education in the field. Um, but it's interesting that you would be someone who is so ex like you, basically you're saying that the therapy is to not go inside, right? You're like, and obviously we recommend meditation. We have meditations. I, I'm assuming you're not saying yeah. you should never meditate. I think, I think meditation can be very good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like even like, but it's just, it's just interesting to hear you be so passionate about the importance of the external work. Um, I, that I find that interesting and yeah. it, it's an alternative. Cause I, I feels like at least in our vein right now and, and certainly kind of where you like spent the last couple of years, um, I think it's interesting to have Christianity critique just only focusing on yourself too, right? Because just focusing on yourself can be its own like privilege, basically, like this way to avoid the, the actual problem. It's like a soothing, um, it makes you feel like you're getting better and healthier when really you're maybe avoiding the truth, kind of like what you're saying. So yeah, absolutely. No, and, and most people do think definitely that, you know, psychoanalysis is like other forms of counseling where it, it's this very internal work. The funny thing is, you know, obviously it's internal to the extent that, you know, we're talking about conflictual desires and emotions, but the, co the concrete notion in psychoanalysis is that, that the way to see 
your kind of like inner world is actually it's like you, you project it like a like a projector on your screen and so the, the point of the analyst in a way is to kind of pretend or become a blank screen to allow you to project all of this stuff you don't even realize you're doing it but you start to treat the analyst like your mother or your father and you start to think they're judging you in that way and the analyst then gets a sense of of how your earlier relationships were but it's this interesting idea that in order to get inside actually we have to be very very sensitive to how we treat the outside yeah um, it is, I, I find it helpful. I don't feel like that theme has been emphasized as much recently. I, that Hearing you share reminds me of like your work and some of the challenges that I've taken away from having you share in the past. And it does remind me of some of my upbringing um, that has emphasized the importance of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I still value that. I don't, I'm not saying that's completely gone, but yeah. in the in the path we've been on that hasn't been as emphasized as much. I think it's just important work that you're highlighting. So thanks for sharing on that. It's helpful. I wanted to hear you share and, and maybe um, Kristen, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, feel free to jump in and interrupt me. But um, before we get to, I know a question that you have on your brain. I wanted to ask you share just a little bit, Pete on kind of the enemy friend dynamic and like if you could dive in a little bit more into the role of neighbor and how we like how you see neighbor critiquing enemy and friend and like what we do with that so like um you you brought that up as, as an example right so i i have a neighbor <laughs> i have a couple of them right and you're right like we're friendly um and, but we have this like essentially contractual relationship right because we live in the same proximity so it's it, it's, it's not good for me for that person to be an enemy. And in some ways it's not very good for me to, to be too close as a friend either, because at some point I just need him to clean up the dog poop off my yard, you know? Um, so I'm curious, like, obviously that's a metaphor. So like, what, what does that do for us if we start to like, like that metaphor do for us in the broader scheme of our life? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's central to Christianity, this notion of neighbor that, um, so there's a, a famous political theorist who was Nazi, who kind of like, uh, he's very, very important in political theory, but he, he basically argued a lot of politics is about dictating who friend and enemy is, right? So it's all about kind of like delineating friends and enemies, and then we fight the enemy and we, we stay close to the friend. Um, the thing about enemies, as I mentioned, is an enemy is someone you can destroy, an enemy is someone you want to get rid of. You want to silence. You want to get out of the world. Um, a neighbor is someone who you are interconnected with. You share the same world with. You have to tarry with them. You have to have conflict with them. And the funny thing is, and I quoted it was a comedian, Dylan Moran, who said, you know, war is the inability to have conflict. And I think this is very, very insightful. Like war is when you're not able to tolerate conflict. And here's the funny thing. And, and it, it's, it's hard to admit this sometimes, but actually philosophies that are all about love and tolerance and friendship and oneness and all of that can often have this very, very dark underbelly that, that erupts um, as a symptom of like a, an enemy that has to then be gotten rid of, who's disturbing the peace, who's preventing this utopic kind of dimension from really solidifying. And this was this is massive within fascism. I mean, Hitler in Mein Kampf 
is talking constantly about organic wholeness, oneness, the body, and then the, the figure of the Jew as this disease, this virus, this disturbance who's coming in. So you could say that the, one of the issues with totalitarianism is it's not totalitarian enough because it can't, it, it, totalitarianism is total, it's totalizing, it creates a oneness, right? Everything. But the one thing the totalitarian can't bring in is otherness difference right the one thing it can't integrate is difference itself whenever you come to conflict you have to say that um oh there there are these others in my society i disagree with vehemently perhaps and i have to sit down with them and we have to figure out ways forward we have to engage in conflict we have to have those difficult conversations now the the argument i'm making is that's central to life, that there is a type of antagonism in life itself. So there's different names for this, right? In democracy, it's called, or sorry, in politics, it's called democracy, which is the non-at-oneness of the social body that generates complexity, right? Civilization, right? In biology, it's called evolution. Evolution is the non-at-oneness of the biological system that creates the complex biological organisms we see today. In mathematics, it's called incompleteness. Incompleteness in brief is Gödel's proof, well, proof of sorts that, that, that mathematics cannot prove itself, that, that fundamental axioms of mathematics fall into contradiction. They, they're proofs that, that can't be proved, right? Um, and in, in, in physics, it's called indeterminacy, you know, the quantum indeterminacy, where, where reality is, is, is it in antagonism with itself. Um, in Christianity, it's called salvation. This is where Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which shows that God is not at one with God, right? God is an antagonism with God, right? So I think that's the source of all of those things. They're all connected. Well, anyway, my point is that this awesome. idea... That's, that's a great bit. I was definitely tracking on the physics one. I'm super, super well-versed in all physics, but... <laughs> oh, oh, are you? Oh, no. no, not at all. I'm totally messing with you. <laughs> but, but I love what you're saying. Keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Well, so you could say God, Christ is the indeterm is the quantum indeterminacy within the heart of the absolute. I mean, that's where this... Anyway, uh, but um, so the argument is that actually... productive conflict, productive disagreement, seeing the other as a neighbor that you have to tarry with is actually what generates enjoyment, meaning, and progress. Now, I'm an apocalypticist, not a progressive, right? So, and what I mean by that is is a progressive is someone who sees where the world is going, right? You kind of go, right, we kind of know where it's going. So you can love people who think differently from you, but only in a patronizing way, because you know the answer, you know where everything's going, right? Um, An apocalypticist is someone who goes, I don't know where the future lies. All I know is that the future is created through productive conflict. And I'm going to give you one example, and then, but it's important because in Northern Ireland, I grew up in a 30-year war called the Troubles, right? So I grew up in a war, and I also saw... The, the coming to the end of that war in 1998 called, the, it was the peace process called the Good Friday Accord, the Good Friday Agreement. Now, the interesting thing about this is we were all fighting, Protestants, Catholics, Loyalists, Unionists, British government, Irish government, we're all fighting. And eventually we realized if we keep fighting like this, we're going to destroy everything. And so incredibly, all sides said, we are going to enter into conflict, right? We are going to get, go and sit in the same room and we're going to fight this out. And we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what's going to happen. 
Um, this was settled on Good Friday, which I think is a really symbolic thing, right? Um, and, and, and basically, we didn't, no one knew where it was going to go, but they knew it had to change. So here's the difference between a progressive and an apocalypticist. Is if, if you're in a relationship, right, you're married and say it's not going well, and you, it's all crap, but it, of course it's disavowed, so you don't even know it yourself. It's coming out in your kids having anorexia or your, your partner having anxiety issues or you working too hard. So the truth is being spoken, but you don't see it, right? So it's your relationship's going on. The, 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 the crisis is there, but it's being embodied objectively, not subjectively. And that comes back to your point is depression is rarely subjective. Depression is often objective. I know the person doesn't know they're depressed. It comes out in their tapping mm. finger and in their itching their skin or whatever. Anyway, so your relationship's not going good. So you go to me, say I'm an analyst. You come to me. I sit down. As an analyst, as a proper analyst, I don't know what's going to happen in your relationship. Are you guys going to split up? Are you going to stay together? Are you going to split up with the type of relationship you had before and start a new relationship? Because by the way, that's the main problem. People often break up with people, but they don't break up with the type of relationship they have with people. So they have the same type of relationship always with different people. Sometimes the more radical thing is stay with the same person, but break up with the type of relationship you have with them, right? But anyway, so you're in therapy, you're sitting down. I don't know where it's going to go. All I can do is bring the conflict to the surface subjectivize it. So now you see that your kid's anorexia is not to do with some mere biological problem that they have, but is a manifestation of a crisis within within your own family unit. That all comes to the surface. And here's the trick. This, This is the trick, right? The only thing I know is I know that your relationship cannot continue the way it is. Once all of the crises are brought to the surface and are seen, you may break up, you may stay together, whatever. But one thing is, the, the terrible way it is at the moment cannot stay the same. And that's what I mean by apocalypticism is an apocalypse. You don't know what's going to happen after the apocalypse. You just bring up the conflict. You bring it to the surface. You see, you see how you're implicated in the conflict yourself. And in doing that, you go, things have to change. And then that happens. Oh, and can I use one example of how this is, right? Is, um, Alika Sapanchek, you think she uses this this little story. I think it's very clever. This guy, right? This this horrible guy who's married to this woman. He comes home from work and he plunks down in his chair. He turns on the TV. There's some adverts, and he says, "Listen, get us a drink before it starts." She says, okay. So she goes and gets him a pint of beer. He drinks it and says, "Listen, give me another beer before it starts." Right? He's looking at the TV and she's like getting annoyed with him. But she says, okay, I'll get him a beer, gets him another beer. And then he says to her, here, get me another beer before it starts. And then she turns around and says, you lazy whatnot, you should get up and get your own bloody beer. And then he says, ah, it started. Right? So in other words, he said, get me a beer before the argument starts. Thinking yeah. that he's divorced from the argument, but he's not divorced from the argument. He's integrated into the argument, right? And, yeah. and the insight of psychoanalysis is always, and Christianity, is to see how we are implicated in the very systems that we think we're attacking. Hmm. Well, who was the source of that story? That's a fantastic oh, story. It's a great story. It's got a, a, a theorist called Alenka Sapanchik. She's very, very good. Difficult, but very, very good. <laughs> she wrote yeah, a book called What is Sex? It's very, very good. Well, thanks for translating it. If you had made that guy's name 
some of your historic names that you've always had your metaphors with Seamus or I can't remember the other names you've chosen. That would have just been like quintessential Pete Rollins. So anyway. <laughs> oh, I should have made it Seamus. That's annoying. I always made it Seamus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kristen, what's okay. your question for Pete? Okay, Pete. So after listening to your message and now this conversation, mm-hmm. um, I am wondering, are you, are you tired? Is it exhausting to live this way? Because I feel like, um, so I, the things that I heard you say are things that I have heard recently too of this, like develop curiosity about yourself. And when the thing, when the slips come out, you have to look at that and say, where did that come from? What truth is that talking about? Or at least that's my interpretation of some of the things I heard from you. And I think I'm just wondering, like, it's kind, it can be kind of exhausting to never take things kind of just at face value. Is that, um, do you understand what I'm saying? And is that exhausting? I feel like you are kind of enlivened by it. Like it gives you energy, but it kind of feels exhausting to me. <laughs> like, like if my husband and I have an argument, I sometimes just want to be like, that was his fault because he's being mean, not where did my anger come from? And is that, and I feel like that's what I'm doing now. This way of being in the world is constantly analyzing myself. And where did, where did, what does that slip of anger say about me? And where did that come from? And what do I need to dig down more into? And it just feels like sometimes I just want to be like, oh, that was an argument because he was mean, even though that's not really the truth. So I don't and know. Often it is. I mean, that's the funny thing. <laughs> like, does it, does, you know, uh, Freud says sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And sometimes people yeah. are just idiots, right? We're all idiots. <laughs> and we all, you know, so so uh, that's definitely the case. And, and I totally get what you're saying. And by the way, you know, there's definitely, you know, sometimes it's not easy. Uh, like sometimes, to be honest, it, the choice between happiness and meaning is a difficult choice. Sometimes mm-hmm. happiness is where you kind of close yourself off to things and just try and be happy. But meaning can sometimes be a little bit more difficult. However, I want to say this to you in light of going, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> the counter argument is that a lot there's, so I, I know a lot of people who suffer from fatigue. For example, fatigue is a very big thing in contemporary society obviously and there's a, there's a few different reasons for that um in fact there's as many different reasons as there are people but but sometimes it takes so much energy to avoid confronting our contradictions like there's so much psychic energy to kind of involved in stopping us from seeing ourselves that that i think that that's all, almost more exhausting it's more fatigue giving the, the alternative for me is not some sort of like, yeah, it, as you're saying, like eternal kind of like, where is this really coming from? What's what? But it's kind of almost, I see this relief of just going, oh, I am, I have multiple desires and things going on and I want to, and I can be comfortable with that. And when you are able to enjoy your own complexity, you, your defense mechanisms are not required as much. And your defense mechanisms, they require so much psychic energy to keep up, right? So, much. so for example, like doubt. If someone has questions about their religion, but they can't face that, that doubt and unknowing, they might become an apologist. And they get so many books about apologetics and they get, listen to so many TV shows and radio shows about apologetics. And it's exhausting because it's a reaction formation. They're, they're exhausting themselves with this profound energy to protect themselves from just going, 
oh yeah, no, I'm full of doubt and unknowing. And, and as soon as they say that, it's like, mm, all of that energy they had to spend. Because I know one guy here, he started a whole radio show seven days a week on apologetics. He says, are you saying that I should doubt? I'm like, no, I'm not saying you should doubt. I'm saying you're already full of doubt. Why else would you have an <laughs> apologetic show seven days a week? You know, you know, man, if you just, just admit it to yourself, it'll be a lot more relaxing. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. there, there is a lot of energy to avoiding yeah. this, I think. Um, and I think you've kind, of, you've kind of hit it, but I think my last question is kind of, why is this way worth it? Yeah. Why is this, yeah, why is this way of being worth it? Yes, that's, yeah, and that is the question, like that, like, you know, because here's the, I'm not going around because I hate it. Like, I mean, I, I could be just doing this kind of stuff because I'm a really nasty person. I want to say, oh, you, you know, you have hidden doubts and unknowing that you don't know about, yeah. you're full of this, that, <laughs> and just enjoy messing people up. Why, the fly I mean, in the Maybe do you I'm, enjoy it? Do you enjoy it? <laughs> I love it. I do love it. But there's a little part of me that loves it as well as just being bad. But there's a little part of me that goes that, that there's something about when you begin to kind of realize these protests within yourself that without even realizing it, your life becomes better. You, you relate better with other people, with yourself. Like, you know, your bad back might not be a physical ailment. Your bad back might, might be to do with a, a, a tension, that you're tense because of something. And you're tense because of some, some trauma that you haven't spoken about, you haven't brought into the light of day. And as you do it, you forget completely about your back. You, and then you go like, oh, remember I used to have a bad back or I had cyclical vomiting. I used to vomit all the time and, or I had insomnia. And then weirdly, as, you, as you're opening yourself up more to the complexities of your life, those begin to disappear. Whereas if you directly embrace them, they don't disappear, right? But, but, but you, so the argument I would want to make is, it's, it's, and, and Christianity's great on this, right? It's, the, it's dialectics. Dialectics is the idea of, if you've got a choice in front of you, uh, you'll try and make the right decision, right? Or maybe you'll try to amalgamate the two decisions, right? Dialectics is kind of always a decision for the worse, right? So um, it's like uh, if, if you're depressed, you go, right, I'm going to be positive, think positive things. I'm, going to go, I'm not going to hang around with negative people, right? So, you know, so that's, the, that's the wise choice, right? The foolish choice would be I'm depressed. I'm going to kind of look at that depression and go deeper into it, right? But that's the dialectic choice. You go into the darkness to get to the light. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You go into death in order to find life. If you want to, the, the wide road, you take the narrow road. Dialectics is this weird thing that, that by taking the wrong path, it leads you to the right. And in, in light of everything I'm saying, it's like going like, so you want me to go into the darkness of my, my trauma? You want me to look at, open that, that up and kind of like begin to work through it and, and disavow parts of myself? That sounds horrible. And for me, what I'm saying is, yeah, but you know what the secret? The secret is when you go there, you'll actually find that that's how you find the light. That's where you'll find the light. That's a great thing. Know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Yeah. Exactly. That's great, Pete. It's funny. I'm not sure if that answered your question, Kirsten. Did that speak to what you're saying? Yeah. 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 I think it's a great a great uh, note to end on, too. Yeah. Just uh, the, the reminder of how much energy it takes to 
essentially push those realities away mm -hmm. and how when we do embrace them that leads to more meaning and not always happiness but to more meaning and to more purpose so but by the way, love those thoughts. About, by the way it's like so much consumerism is based on this like honestly i mean this sounds crazy at first but i kind of realized this myself and myself but the amount of movies we consume reality tv shows we consume or alcohol we consume or consumption 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 is often this frenetic um uh defense against being happy with our own conflicted uh mm. unhappy lives <laughs> you know and and funnily enough whenever you are able to embrace struggle and embrace this complexity you'll find that you'll spend less money You'll, 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 you'll watch less reality TV. You'll watch less, like all of this begins to dissipate. And Pascal might be right. He said the world's, most of the world's problems could be solved if only people were able to sit for 20 minutes in an armchair. But what, what one might find is as we become more comfortable with ourselves, we'll be able to kind of like this whole system that is basically designed to help us consume our way out of an encounter with ourselves that will participate less within it. And that's probably a good thing as well. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Pete, for giving us some time today. Thank you for your talk and for challenging us with some of your thoughts and for kind of letting us do a little bit of a deep dive and picking your brain on this. So much appreciated. So thanks everybody for watching and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.